Father, God, as always, we love you and are grateful to be gathered here this morning because you first loved us. When we were distant from you and dead in our trespasses and sins, you came and you pulled us up out of our mess and you gave us newness of life in Christ. So we, we thank you, first of all, for your abundant, abundant grace. But Lord, our, our hearts are heavy this morning for the country of Ukraine, their people, and specifically the Christians who are there in the midst of what probably feels like hell on earth. Lord, having the privilege of an incredible amount of safety and freedom, we do not know what they are going through. And so our hearts absolutely break for them. And we are crying out on their behalf that you would be near to them, that you would strengthen the resolve of their faith in you so that they would not despair, but so that they would persevere in their mission to be a light in the midst of deep darkness. God, we ask that you would protect precious lives that are in harm's way, that you would continue to empower the church to be a people who serve those in need however they can and to leverage this terrible circumstance to further the message of your kindness towards sinners in Christ. Jesus, please comfort families. Comfort families whose husbands and fathers and brothers and sons have sent them to safety and selflessly stayed behind to defend their freedom. We also lift up all of the world leaders who are involved in some capacity in this conflict that is now uh, rising to the global scale. We uh, pray that you would give wisdom and humility where it's needed, but also, God, that you would give boldness as well, where wrongs must be righted and evil must be addressed and eradicated. At the end of the day, Lord, we pray that your will be done, but we plead with you that your will would be for freedom to prevail here so that your kingdom can flourish in Ukraine with less suffering. And God, now as we open back up to the book of Nehemiah, would you help us to see the truth that is there and to apply it faithfully for your glory and our resulting joy. We love you, Lord. It's in your mighty and sovereign name that we pray. Amen. All right, well, hey, last week uh, in the book of Nehemiah, we talked about Nehemiah's breakthrough after fasting and prayer and the result of uh, God's providential move to sway the heart of the king of Persia to allow him to return back to Judah on a special mission to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And this week, we're, we're going to get into the unfolding of Nehemiah's plans for the, the beginning of this building project. But first, I want to kind of ping off of an idea that we discussed last week from Nehemiah's kind of diplomatic interactions with the king. If you remember last week, Nehemiah had said that he had been careful, okay, not to show his sadness for Israel on his Face. Like he, he hadn't worn his heart on his sleeve, so to speak, for about four months, not because he was being manipulative, but because he was being self-controlled and using a good degree of emotional intelligence. And he, he didn't want to come out and alert the king to some, some half-baked plan. He wanted to be sure that he had heard from the Lord, and he wanted to be sure that he would have the entirety of his plan ready to go before he spoke so as to have the best shot at getting approval. This was uh, very wise and judicious of Nehemiah, which I said we should strive to emulate, right? And here's why I bring this back up. Because Christians are people who have been radically changed by grace, right? Christians are people who have been radically changed by grace. Like, I don't know about you, but I am not the same person that I was before Christ, and in God's kindness, he is continuing to work on me and by his spirit conform me, uh, slow as that process may be, into the image of his son. And what I have observed in others who this kind of born-again transformation has happened in is though you know, it's, it's, not, it's not as though following Jesus makes us smarter, right? It's not like it makes us smarter per se, 
but it does begin to alter the way we see the world. And biblical wisdom gives us new categories to think in that, that much of the unbelieving world often does not have the spiritual capacity to operate with. Like when you're changed by the good news of the gospel and you start to become this grace-infused person, here's another practical outworking of that, okay? You become a reasonable person. You become a reasonable person, a more, a more reasonable person. Like you become a gentler person and a more understanding person and a more discerning person so that you don't get stirred up. You don't get all stirred up by all that the world gets stirred up by and you're not pulled to one extreme or the other in all of the cultural and political wars of our day because uh, what you probably realize if you're a Christian who's keeping abreast of what's happening all around us in the world, is uh, in a world full of extremes, usually none of the extremes are 100% correct, are they? <laughs> Have you noticed this? It's really hard to align with any of the extremes as a biblical Christian. Like as Christians, we, we find ourselves having to form thoughts and opinions that are unbiased and thus that fall somewhere in the middle Right of all of the what well, all the different sides are loudly advocating for. Like I'm just going to be 100% transparent with you. Okay, maybe I've said this before. When it comes to like political leaning, I, I tend to lean conservative. Okay, maybe that's not a surprise to you, but I, I, can I just tell you, I do not get my identity wrapped up in conservative ideology. You follow me on that? You know what I mean by that? I don't get my identity wrapped up in it because while the more conservative proponents and politicians of our day are often fighting for causes that I, that I agree with, okay, they're not always right. They are not always right. And more so than that, unfortunately, they often have extremely mean-spirited nasty attitudes towards people who think differently than them. And that is not the way of Christ. That's not the way of Christ. Now, why would I tell you that? Because here's a principle that I think as Christians we need to think deeply on. It's going to be something that we see in our text today, but it's also something that's true for much of our theology, okay? Two things can be true at one time. Two things can be true at the same time. You follow me? I know you're like, okay, Tad, like, yeah, we know that, right? <laughs> but our culture, in large part, does not know that, do they? Our culture has a hard time with that. So many people in younger generations like ours and ones coming up behind us tend to conflate disagreement with hatred and agreement with love. And so if you, uh, if you disagree with me, you push back on my lifestyle and my choices, you must hate me, okay? And if you want to love me, the way that you can do that is by agreeing with and affirming everything that I do. Which can we just please collectively realize how backwards that is? That is so backwards. If you are a parent and you affirm everything your child does, I don't care how sweet you talk to them and how well you provide for their every need, you are not a good parent. You are a bad parent. Good parenting involves saying no. It involves telling our children that they are wrong and they are sinful when they're wrong and when they're acting sinful. And it involves loving discipline when they determine to disobey the rules and principles that we lay out for them, not because we hate them, right? Not because we hate them, because we love them deeply, right? And we want to raise them up in the love and the admonition of the Lord. We want them to grow into wise Jesus-loving adults, right? Now, the same thing goes true for our willingness to speak truth and evangelize adults in our proximity, 
doesn't it? This is the same principle here. Think about it. Like, what is evangelism? What is evangelism if not saying to somebody, I think you're wrong about the way you're living your life? Isn't it? In love, I think you're wrong. I think you're wrong. But I was too. I was too. But God loves you. And I love you. And so I want you to know the truth about who he is and who you really are as his son or daughter so that you can have the greatest possible joy in this life and in the life to come. There is one of those. And we want you to be there for that. As Christians, we're called to be reasonable people who realize that two things can be true at once and who often have to live our lives in the tension that that creates. We can 100% disagree with someone and how they're living their life, and we can simultaneously love that person and care about them, okay? Or vice versa. We can 100% align with and agree with a cause that someone is standing for, but we can also not approve of and adopt their entire worldview and ideology hook, line, and sinker. We can do both. I, that's so hard. I know, like, our culture is like, no, you can't. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Christians can. We can be reasonable people, and we can hold two things in tension like that, okay? All right. The same principle of two things being true at once applies to many facets of our faith. I won't get into all of them because I don't have time, but today in our passage, we're going to see a really important one for if we're going to persevere as Christians in a hostile world that we live in. And so let's go ahead and pick it back up in Nehemiah chapter 2. We're going to pick it up in verse 9. We're going to read through the end of the chapter. Nehemiah says, And then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen, but when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly, that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode, and I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire." When I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. And then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so, and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to, who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also the words of the king that he had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Samballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. All right. So Nehemiah sets out for Jerusalem, for, for Judah, and he is well protected, right? He, like, ha- having these horsemen and military officers escorting him would have communicated a great deal of power and authority. And some commentators speculate that this indicates that uh, King Artaxerxes had, had already gone ahead and just made Nehemiah the de facto governor of Judah so that he would have all the leverage he needed to complete his mission and rebuild uh, the wall. But either way, okay, Nehemiah has acquired all the documentation from the king to show that he is legit, 
okay, and has the clearance to ride through on special business matters. Uh, but look what happens immediately on the very first step. It's like, you can just picture this, right? Like he gets off the horse or, or out of the carriage or, or whatever, and it says, but when Samballot the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Other ancient documentation discovered from this time period tells us that Sam Ballot uh, was the non-Jewish governor of the province nearby, uh, Samaria. And we, uh, we, we think presumably uh, that Tobiah was, was Jewish in his heritage, okay? Uh, but he had been put over the region of Ammon, where Israel's longtime enemies, the Ammonites, lived. And, and clearly, he doesn't have his allegiances in the right place where they should be. And he, apparently, he has some relation. He has a special in with his family with the high priest of that day, okay? And so uh, there's, there's some political maneuvering that is taking place here. Uh, we see at the end of the passage, there's a other opponent, Geshem the Arab, and, and all three of these men begin to ridicule, mock, and even low-key threaten uh, Nehemiah and God's people as they set out, out on this good, God-honoring work. And that question, are you rebelling against the king, is not a genuine concern. Okay, uh, it's a snide reference to how they had successfully halted the work of rebuilding Jerusalem previously by falsely telling the Persian king that the Jewish people would not submit to him if they could rebuild their city. So just blatant slander, honestly, okay? And so isn't it interesting? Nehemiah rides in, fully loaded, letters from the king, the clear providence of God is working in his favor, and no sooner than he arrives, he's facing opposition. <laughs> it's literally like verse 9, the Lord has worked mightily on his behalf. He's had a great breakthrough after fasting and praying, right? He's been singing that song, Breakthrough, right, on the way over that we just sang. Verse 10, some power players surrounding Judah begin to push back on his godly mission. So here are two things I want you to see that can be true at the same time. It is both possible and common to experience the approval of God and the disapproval of man simultaneously when living your life on mission. Okay. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke 6, 22 and 23. He said, blessed are you, is it up here? Blessed are you. What's that next word? When. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Not if, but when. He says, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. He's saying, when people don't like you and when they mistreat you simply for your commitment to your faith, you're in good company. You're in good company. In fact, when you start following Jesus and people hate you and they exclude you and you find out they're talking mean about you behind your back because, hey, let me just tell you straight up, if you're talking behind someone's back, they're going to find out. You know that? They will. Trust me. It always happens. Okay? So they're talking mean about you behind your back and then they turn around and say, you're the one in the wrong or you're, you're crazy, or you're too religious. Good. Good. Jesus says that's actually an indicator that you're doing something right. Because, he says, that's the same thing that happened to all the prophets. That's the same thing that happened to all the prophets. Sinful, prideful people usually don't like the presence of humble, faithful people because it, it chafes them. It chafes them. It, it annoys them because it inadvertently exposes their sin. And so rather than repent, they will puff up and try to sabotage faithful people in order to make themselves look better. This is actually very common. Okay? Listen to what the Apostle Paul says about this in 2 Corinthians 3. He says, Indeed, all, not some, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will, not might, will be persecuted. Now, I, I think Jesus was clear. 
But if there was any ambiguity left in your mind, Paul just says it straight up, man. Like, if you want to follow Christ for real, and if you want to live a faithful life before God, just go ahead and get this into your mind, okay? Just go ahead and settle this, right? You're going to experience the approval of God and the, the disapproval of man simultaneously when living your life on mission for the kingdom of God. You will, I promise. It, it may seem odd that those two things could be true at once, but they can and they often are. This flies in the face of what we want to believe about life. I know. Trust me. We want to believe. If I just get my life on track and seek God's will for me and strive to be obedient to his word, everything will just fall right in place. Everything will just go well for me. Don't we want to believe that? I know I do. As much as I wish that were the case, guys, we live in a broken world that is hostile to God. Do you know that? We live in a broken world that's hostile to God. The world and the cultures of the world, they do not want God's people telling them, even indirectly, that they are under authority. They're under the authority of their creator. And then as humanity, we've been given a specific identity and a specific way to live our lives for God's glory, not our own. Our sinful culture despises that message, the message of the Bible. They despise it so much, they've come up, for a, they've come up with a term for it. Do you know what it is? Hate speech. Okay. The most loving thing as Christians that we can do for anyone is to tell them the most important truths in all of history, that God has a good design for our lives. We have sinned against him by rejecting that design, and we deserve to be punished for it. But Jesus came to be our Savior and to take our punishment on himself, on the cross, so that we could place our faith in him and recover our true identity and pursue his good design for our lives once again. Right? Well, the church hears that, and they say amen. They think, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Hard-hearted, sinful people often hear it like nails on a chalkboard or a metal knife on a ceramic plate, you know, or like a Nickelback song coming on the radio, right? <laughs> Are you tracking with me? They don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear it. And listen, I'm not trying to make you second guess whether or not you want to be a Christian. Being a Christian gives us the greatest sense of peace and joy and freedom that can be experienced in this life. To be reconciled back to the God who, who made you and to be gladly living for the purposes for which he made you. Namely, to exalt him, to glorify him, to enjoy him. There is nothing better than that to know our true identity and to be walking in step with it. It is the closest to total and perfect fulfillment this side of eternity. But sin is blinding. Sin is blinding. People who are blinded by their sin and who are actively pursuing sinful lifestyles do not like the sound of the gospel because it confronts their sin and it offends them because it threatens to eradicate their sin. And so as much as I would love to tell you that after your fast is over, everything is going to go smooth for you, as you seek to live a more faithful and godly life, you're not going to face any opposition as you pursue the will of God in your life. I would be lying to you if I said that. It's probably not true. You will experience the approval of God in your life. Praise God. You will experience the peace that accompanies God's approval for sure. It's such a wonderful thing to sense the presence of God in your life and to know that you are living to please him. But you can also expect to face the disapproval of man at the same point, at some point, even as you're experiencing the approval of God at the same time. So listen, don't get mixed up. Don't get mixed up. We, we, we kind of tend to do this, I think, you know, usually when we're not reading our Bibles, but so you should read your Bible, but we get mixed up. We think if, if my life is easy, God must be happy with me. 
if my life is hard, he must be mad at me. I've done something wrong. It's not how that works. It's not how that works. The agenda of God and the agenda of the world are at odds. And so you, if you are swimming against the current of our culture, and you, you listen, you do crazy things, right? Like fast and pray and read your Bible. And if you get really extreme, you do crazy things like give 10% of your income to the local church. And you actually, listen, man, like you're a nut. You share your faith with others you can expect you'll face opposition. You can expect that you'll face opposition. Pastor and Professor Thomas Schreiner says, as Christians, we weep and mourn over the sin that is accepted in our society. The response will lead to tensions with our family and our friends who simply cannot understand us. And this response will lead to tensions in the workplace with employers and coworkers who think we are out of touch with society and reality. And it may lead to discrimination in our jobs and the loss of religious liberties in society. But we are called to endure suffering as Christ did and to entrust final judgment to God. Right? This is simply part of the Christian life opposition. Okay? It's not fun. I know. I've experienced it several times in my life. I anticipate to experience it again. And it feels a bit unusual to know that what you're trying to do is right. And yet the response you're getting from others is negative and even antagonistic. But as believers, we should not be swayed by that. Because as we read our Bibles, don't forget to do that. As we read our Bibles, we realize it's actually not as strange as it feels when it's happening. Right? We can take comfort in the fact that not only, as Jesus indicates, does it show that we're doing it right, so to speak, okay, but so many places in Scripture speak to the reality that what people mean against us for evil, God actually uses for good. What people mean against us for evil, God uses for good. He works all things together for our good. He uses trials and adversity and persecution to strengthen and to galvanize our faith and show us that as long as we have him, it doesn't matter what the world tries to do to us, right? Because actually, (laughs) God uses opposition to shape us more into what the world so opposes, right? Like The world often wants to squash Christians and Christianity, and and under all the heat and the pressure, we actually wind up being refined all the more. Our Savior and our Lord Jesus, he, He took the path of suffering into glory. And so when we suffer persecution at the hands of our enemies, they are unwittingly serving God's redemptive work for our sanctification. They're working for us, right? Which is why we can do something that seems so unnatural as rejoice in the midst of opposition. We can rejoice because we know it's not a mystery. It's not a mystery why it's happening to us. We see it coming. We understand that when faithfulness is pursued, opposition is inevitable because God's people have enemies inside and outside their walls. God's people have enemies inside and outside their walls. We see this with Nehemiah. Sambalat the Horonite and Geshem the Arab come against him because they're not Jews. And so they don't want Israel to regain strength and threaten their their powerful positions in the land surrounding them. But I, I want us to take careful note about this guy, Tobiah. Okay, might just read right over that. But this guy, Tobiah, he was of Jewish heritage. And like I said, he had familial connections to the leadership of Jerusalem, and he also opposed Nehemiah. He also opposed Nehemiah. Sadly, the truth is, while we would expect to gain enemies from the unbelieving world around us, it's the attacks from inside the church that seem to surprise us and hurt us the most. But friends, this too is the way that it goes, right? 
which is probably why Nehemiah keeps his inspection of the wall so secretive at the beginning, right? Because he's, he's wise enough to know that it's likely not just the competing nations uh, around them who are going to try to derail his project. There are likely sympathizers to their enemies inside the camp, too, who don't want to see the status quo challenged, right? They don't want the kingdom of God to advance because they like the current setup. They're profiting off of the current setup. The current setup is making them look good. They don't want it to change. This happens even in good churches and in believing families. Okay. Naysayers and slanderers and people who, for whatever reason, like Nehemiah's opponents, they don't care about and are even willing to resist the welfare of God's people. Speaking of some who used to call themselves believers, Paul says this in Philippians 3. He says, For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Uh, This is really the best biblical explanation that I can give. Uh, Even though these folks are in a uh, Christian circle, uh, they themselves don't have a Christian mindset because uh, they probably don't have a heart that has been made new by Christ. And, And maybe they've grown pretty skilled at appearing to be godly externally, but at the end of the day, their minds are set on earthly things. They, they don't care about the cause of Christ. Uh, they don't care about the mission of his kingdom advancing because it, it really it, it conflicts too much. It conflicts too much with their, their own little kingdom of self and the cause of their comfort, the cause of their preferences, or the cause of their stockpile of, of personal wealth and possessions. And they, they, they may say They may say that their God is Jesus, but when push comes to shove, their God is actually their belly, right? Which which just means it's not really their their belly, okay? It just means that their their God is their own impulses. What they want most is whatever feels good and whatever makes them look good, not what most exalts Christ. These kinds of people have slipped through the cracks into the population of God's people from the very beginning. And it continues to happen in the church today. Maybe they know all the right answers, but they don't really believe the right answers. And though they can articulate what's right in theory, they're not committed to what's right in practice. Jesus talks about this in the parable of the wheat and the weeds. And he says, uh, more or less, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it because he's going to sort it all out in the end, Paul explains it this way in 1 Corinthians. He says, when you come together as a church, I, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it, in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. And so, uh, once again, just like with enemies outside of our walls, when we encounter enemies Inside our walls, who we never would have thought would have been our enemies, though it's painful and they have a greater ability to inflict hurt and cause problems, Paul essentially says it has to be this way. It has to be this way. He says, there must be factions among you in order to tell who is genuine and who's not. Who's the real deal and who is a counterfeit? In my own experience of these kinds of sad revelations, it has definitely been painful. But when I've encountered Christians and even Christian leaders who have turned out to be secretly divisive or uh, sinful in some way that they uh, have been trying to conceal, it has served to do exactly what Paul says It's grown my discernment of character. It's shown me what things to look out for people, for in people who are people who are genuine and people who are not. So let's not be naive, church. We have an enemy with a capital E, 
the devil. And he wants to gain a foothold in our lives and break up the church because he hates God and he hates us. He does not want us to further the mission of God together in the world. And so uh, he's always working to raise up lowercase e enemies that distract us or discourage us and, and get us off course. And, and the reason I distinguish between our actual enemy and, the, and people who uh, set themselves up as our enemies, and I, I put enemies in quotations in your notes, is because uh, at the end of the day, we have to remember, people are not our enemies. People are not our enemies. They are our mission. Even if they oppose us, and persecute us, and hate us, and slander us, and mock us, or whatever the case may be. Ephesians says that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against powers and principalities and cosmic forces of darkness that do not want the gospel to prevail, and they don't want Christ to reign over them. And that's why we're told to love our enemies. Because if you, if you really get down to it, listen, people who oppose God's people, they don't oppose us because of us, right? They oppose us because really, deep down, they're, they're opposed to God. And we don't want that for them, do we, church? We don't want that for them. The darkness and despair of eternal separation from God in hell is the final destination for anyone who adamantly opposes God and his Christians. Friends, we should not desire that for our worst human enemy. We're called to be holy like God is holy. And that means desiring that None should perish, but that all would reach a state of repentance and trust in Jesus while they still can. Amen? So, opposition. It's going to come for us, and if, if, especially if we're striving to be faithful. It's, it's inevitable. Opposition from outside of our walls, obviously, but even opposition from inside our walls. These are tough realities of living in a world that is broken and marred by sin, but God is still good. He's still faithful, and our experience of trial and difficulty is not indicative of his disapproval of us. Two things can be true at once. We can have the smile of God's kind providence in our life and the scowl of the world's hateful disdain in our lives at the same time. At the same time. Weird, but it's reality. All right, so let's wrap up with uh, something encouraging. Once uh, Nehemiah gets a, a good look at the state of the wall, he heads back and he is ready to give his call to action. He gathers the people of Israel together and he says, look, I know you see that we're in a bad spot, but God is on our side. So let's get up. And let's take back our city. Let's build our wall back up and let's be who we are called to be. And what you see is, clearly Nehemiah is a pretty good visionary, but also uh, that God continues to give him favor. And so uh, the people essentially look around at each other and they say in unison, bet, like let's do it. That's how the kids say Let's do it these days, uh, bet. So anyway, so, so they start getting ready uh, to get after it. It says they, they strengthen their hands for the good work, but then the naysayers, they rear their heads again and start throwing shade, and Nehemiah does what any good leader would do. He cuts them off. He cuts them off. He says, the God of heaven will make us prosper, 
and we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Translation. Hey, let me just stop you right there and remind you that we are God's people. And if you don't want to help with what we're doing and you want to oppose God, then I don't recommend it, but there's the door. Okay? Good chat, right? So here's, here's the second point today, okay? Uh, anything worth building cannot be built alone. God's word says that we need each other. Nehemiah had a strong vision and a great plan and all the resources ready to go, but he could not do the project himself. It was one that Israel could only complete together. And church, the same is true for us today. We have a mission from Christ that we cannot do alone, and frankly, that we are commanded to not even try to do alone. Christianity uh, is not a solo act. It's a team sport. I say this all the time, but at Mosaic, our, our philosophy is not that you come here on, on Sunday mornings to watch me and, and a few others uh, do ministry, okay? I, I'm here, and our, our other uh, handful of leaders are here to equip you for the work of ministry and to do ministry alongside of you, okay? You can read about that in Ephesians chapter 4 if you want to see where I'm coming up with that. I didn't just make that up. That's, that's in the Bible, all right? Because we need each other. In fact, this idea is just shot through the New Testament. There are 59 directive statements in the New Testament that involve some version of the phrase, one another. That's why we're called a church body, and that's why if you're part of a church, you're called a member, right? It's the imagery of the human body that has lots of parts that all work in unison together for a common purpose. So uh, listen, if we continue to allow ourselves to ascribe to all of the individualism and, to be blunt, the selfishness of our age, and we continue to stay home and not increase our gathering together as often as we can, not only are we not going to accomplish the mission that Christ has given us to seek out and get the gospel to the lost, but we're not going to get the help that we actually need in our individual needs and goals either. Something I often pray for myself and, and I have for years is, God, continue shaping me. Continue making me to be uh, the man that you desire for me to be. Because who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want that? To be the man, husband, father, brother, son, or uh, woman, wife, mother, sister, daughter, or, or friend that we should be. We all want that. We all want that, but do you know how God is often doing that work inside of us? He's doing it incrementally as we spend time together and see the strengths of others that we can emulate. He's doing it as we spend time sitting under the word together and being convicted and challenged by it in each other's living rooms. He's doing it as we serve the community together and see the hearts of our brothers and sisters in action that compel us to be uh, more Christ-like as they are. God grows us and he sanctifies us in large part by our togetherness. And so just a few examples from uh, the New Testament of that would be, uh, first of all, 1 Thessalonians 5.14. It says, And we urge you, brothers... Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Galatians 6, 1 through 3 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, 
and so fulfill the law of Christ. Or if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. I, I chose these two in particular because they showcase the, the one anotherness of the New Testament, like I was saying, but also because they put on display our neediness of each other. Listen, we all have seasons of idleness or feeling faint-hearted or where our weaknesses seem to be showing through in 1080p HD. I don't even think that's like the best quality anymore, but anyway, you, you, you get the point here, okay? We, we all have sins and we struggle uh, with things and we have burdens that we are carrying that we need each other to help shoulder them uh, for us and, and with us and, and fight these things with us and work through it with us and maybe even just, honestly, maybe even just throw us over your shoulder, and carry us for a bit. Anybody here need to just be carried sometimes? I know I do. Competent as many of us are, this is a military community, and we're living in the DIY generation, I know, but competency is not the same thing as capability. Competency is not the same thing as capability. None of us can finish this race alone. And anything worth building cannot be built alone. God's word says that we need each other. Guys, I would argue that the church is the most worthy thing for us to be building and uh, we certainly can't build it alone, but the same is true about your family and your faith and your godly goals. They require outside help. And if we live like that is not true, Galatians says we're only deceiving ourselves. Right? This is why for those who were at our partner meeting uh, last Sunday night, you know that our theme for this year is just one word, together together. Because in the past two years, the church has been fractured and pulled apart, and some have drifted apart by their own doing throughout this pandemic. And, and now that we're on the other side, we need to recommit to strengthening our hands for the good work that is in front of us and be the church together again. And we're not rebuilding a wall I know, but uh, what we're rebuilding is just as important in our time. We're rebuilding the witness of Jesus' church, honestly. Scripture says if we, if we want people to know we are his disciples and to see the allure of our gospel community together, we're going to have to love one another. We're going to have to love one another. In order to do that well, we're going to have to do that together, fam. We're going to have to do it together. I could harp on that all afternoon, but I'll just close with this important lens through which we should see the remainder of the book of Nehemiah. The memoir of Nehemiah, while Nehemiah is a great leader, is not ultimately a manual for leadership. And while it can really inspire us to get her done. It's not merely a monument to get it done-ism. It's a foreshadowing. The memoir of Nehemiah is a foreshadowing. After the wall is done, the people of Israel experience 400 years of silence from God's end because while the wall was important and it was necessary for the post-exile people of God, ultimately, with the gospel applied to this story, the point of the whole thing is that whether we're rebuilding our faith, our marriage, our family, our church, or, or some other biblical priority, Jesus is the greater Nehemiah calling us to rise up and who supplies all of the grace that we need to do it. First, 
He calls us to rise up out of spiritual death by giving us newness of life in uh, Christ by his spirit. That's the first work of grace in our lives as Christians. But as we move on from there, he's continuing to supply grace to us moment by moment to live as his people who strive to bring glory to him in everything that we do. This is why Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, he says, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, what good resolves are you making as you continue to fast? We are two-thirds of the way through, and so I, I trust that if you've been faithful and you've been in the Word, the Lord has been prodding your heart. The Lord has been prompting you to make some plans to change, to grow in your faith, to strengthen your marriage to lead your family, or whatever the, whatever the case may be. But I also hope that if you call Mosaic your church home, you have your church on your heart as well, and that one of your resolves is to be together with your brothers and sisters in Christ who are here, who need you, but also who you need. So this body can work the way it's supposed to with all of its members functioning at 100%. Just like Israel had a mission to rebuild Jerusalem, its temple and its wall, we too have a mission as the church, God's people in this age. And we're going to face opposition just like they did. But we don't need to let that discourage us. We don't need to let that distract us. We don't need to let that get us off course or slow us down. Because Jesus is the greater Nehemiah calling us to rise up and who supplies all of the grace that we need to do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for your word in the book of Nehemiah. God, I am just continually amazed at just how gospel-rich this uh, memoir is. It's often overlooked in the Old Testament. So, Father, I just pray that uh, we would continue to look to it and that we would continue to apply it uh, and that we would uh, just continue by grace-driven effort, God, as uh, your church, as your people, to, to rise up after this time of fasting and prayer together, and that we would devote ourselves to the good works that you have set out before us to be done. Father, we love you. Thank you for this day, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.